0: Chapter 34 of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter 34 Introduced Species That Have Been Beneficial. Man has made numerous experiments in the transplantation of wild species of mammals and birds from one country or continent to another. About one half of these efforts have been beneficial, and the other half have resulted disastrously. The transplantation of any wild animal species is a leap in the dark. On general principles it is dangerous to meddle with the laws of nature, and attempt to improve upon the code of the wilderness." Our best wisdom in such matters may easily prove to be short-sighted folly. The trouble lies in the fact that concerning transplantation it is impossible for us to know beforehand all the conditions that will affect it, or that it will affect, and how it will work out. In its own home a species may seem not only harmless, but actually beneficial to man. We do not know, and we cannot know, all the influences that keep it in check, and that mold its character. We do not know, and we cannot know without a trial, how new environment will affect it, and what new traits of character it will develop under radically different conditions. The gentle dove of Europe may become the tyrant dove of Cathay. The repressed rabbit of the old world becomes in Australia the uncontrollable rabbit, a devastator and a pest of pests. No wild species should be transplanted and set free in a wild state to stock new regions, without consulting men of wisdom, and following their advice. It is now against the laws of the United States to introduce and acclimatize in a wild state, anywhere in the United States, any wild bird species without the approval of the Department of Agriculture. The law is a wise one. Furthermore, the same principle should apply to birds, that it is proposed to transplant from one portion of the United States into another, especially when the two are widely separated on this point i once learned a valuable lesson which may well point my present moral incidentally also it was a narrow escape for me a gentleman of my acquaintance who admires the european magpie and is well aware of its accepted residence in various countries in europe once requested my cooperation in securing and acclimatizing at his country estate a number of birds of that species as in duty bound i laid the matter before our department of agriculture and asked for an opinion. The department replied, in effect, why import a foreign magpie when we have in the West a species of our own quite as handsome, and which could be more easily transplanted. The point seemed well taken. Now, I had seen much of the American magpie in its wild home, the Rocky Mountains, and the western border of the Great Plains, and I thought I was acquainted with it. I knew that a few complaints against it had been made, but they seemed to me to be very trivial. To me our magpie seemed to have a generally unobjectionable record. Fortunately for me I wrote to Mr. Hershey, assistant curator of ornithology in the Colorado State Museum, for assistance in procuring fifty birds, for transplantation to the State of New York. Mr. Hershey replied that if I really wished the birds for acclimatization he would gladly procure them for me but he said that in the thickly settled farming communities of Colorado the magpie is now regarded as a pest. It devours the eggs and nestlings of other wild birds, and not only that, it destroys so many eggs of domestic poultry that many farmers are compelled to keep their egg-laying hens shut up in wire enclosures. Now this condition happened to be entirely unknown to me, because I never had seen the American magpie in action in a farming community. Of course, the proposed experiment was promptly abandoned, but it is embarrassing to think how near I came to making a mistake. Even if the magpies had been transplanted and had become a nuisance in this state, they could easily have been exterminated by shooting, but the memory of the error would have been humiliating to the party of the first part. THE OLD WORLD Pheasants IN AMERICA In 1881 the first Chinese ring-necked pheasants were introduced into the United States, twelve miles below Portland, Oregon, twelve males and three females. The next year, Oregon gave pheasants a five-year closed season. A little later, the golden and silver pheasants of China were introduced, and all three species throve mightily on the Pacific coast, in Oregon, Washington, and western British Columbia. In 1900, the sportsmen of Portland and Vancouver were shooting cock-golden pheasants according to law. The success of Chinese and Japanese pheasants on the Pacific coast soon led to experiments in the more progressive states at state expense. State pheasant hatcheries have been established in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, Iowa, and California. In many localities the Old World pheasants have come to stay. The rise and progress of the ring-neck in western New York has already been noted. It came about merely through protection that protection was protection in fact not the false protection that shoots on the sly it is the irony of fate that full protection should be accorded a foreign bird in order that it may multiply and possess the land while the same kind of protection is refused the native bob white and it is now almost a dead species so far as this state is concerned in looking about for grievances against the ring neck and english pheasant some persons have claimed that in winter these birds are butters which means that they harmfully strip trees and bushes of the buds that those bushes will surely need in their spring opening. On that point Dr. Joseph Kalbfuss, Secretary of the Pennsylvania Game Commission, sent out a circular letter of inquiry, in response to which he received many statements. With but one exception, all the testimony received was to the effect that pheasants are not bud-eaters, and that generally the charge is unfounded. The introduction of old-world pheasants, and the attempted introduction of the Hungarian partridge, are effects designed first of all to furnish sportsmen something to shoot, and incidentally to provide a new food supply for the table. The people of this country are not starving, nor are they even very hungry for the meat of strange birds, but as a food-producer the pheasant is all right. It disgusts me to the core, however, to see states that wantonly and wickedly, through sheer apathy and lack of business enterprise, have allowed the quail, the heath-hen, the pinnated grouse, and the ruffled grouse to become almost exterminated by extravagant and foolish shooters, now putting forth wonderfully diligent efforts in spending money without end, in introducing foreign species. Many men actually take the ground that our game can't live in its own country any longer, but only the ignorant and the unthinking will say so give our game birds decent sensible actual protection stop their being slaughtered far faster than they breed and they will live anywhere in their own native haunts but where is there one species of upland game bird in america that has been sensibly and adequately protected from portland maine to portland oregon there is not one not a single locality in which protection from shooting has been sensible or just or adequate we have universally given our american upland game birds an unfair deal and now we are adding insult to slaughter by bringing in foreign game birds to replace them because our birds can't live before five million gunshots our american game birds can live anywhere in the haunts where nature placed them that are not today actually occupied by cities and towns give me the making of the laws and i will make the prairie chicken and quail as numerous throughout the northern states east of the great plains as domestic chickens are outside the regular poultry farms. There is only one reason why there are not ten million quail in the state of New York today one for each human inhabitant, and that reason is the infernal greed and selfishness of the men who have almost exterminated our quail by overshooting. Don't talk to me about the hard winters killing off our quail. It is the hard cheek of the men who shoot them when they ought to let them alone." The state of Iowa could support five hundred thousand prairie chickens and never miss the waste grain that they would glean in the fields, but now the prairie chicken is practically extinct in Iowa, only a few scattered specimens remaining as last survivors in some of the northern counties. The migration of those birds that unexpectedly came down from the north last winter was like the fall of a meteor, only the birds promptly faded away again. Why should New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts exterminate the heath-hen and coddle the ring-necked pheasant and the Hungarian partridge? The introduction of the Old World pheasants interests me very little. Every one that I see is a painful reminder of our slaughtered quail and grouse, the birds that never have had a square deal from the American people. Thus far the introduction of the Hungarian partridge has not been successful anywhere, connecticut missouri new jersey and i think other states have tried this and failed the failure of that species brings no sorrow to me i prefer our own game birds and if the american people will not conserve those properly and decently they deserve to have no game birds the european red deer in new zealand occasionally a gameless land makes a ten strike by introducing a foreign game animal that does no harm and becomes of great value the greatest success ever made in the transplantation of game animals has been in New Zealand. Originally, New Zealand possessed no large animals, and no big game. When nature passed around the deer, antelopes, sheep, goats, wild cattle, and bears, New Zealand failed to receive her share. For centuries, her splendid forests, her grand mountains, and picturesque valleys remained untented by big game. In eighteen sixty four, the Prince Consort of England caused seven head of European red deer to be taken from the Royal Park at Windsor and sent to Christchurch, New Zealand. Only three of the animals survived the long voyage, a buck and two does. For several weeks the two were kept in a barn in Christchurch, where they served no good purpose and were not likely to live long or be happy. Finally some one said, Let's set them free in the mountains. The idea was adopted. The three animals were hauled an uncertain number of miles into the interior mountains and set free. They promptly settled down in their new home. They began to breed, and now on the North Island there are probably five thousand European red deer, every one of which has descended directly from the famous three. And here is the strangest part of the story. The red deer of the North Island represent the greatest case of inbreeding of wild animals on record. According to the experience of the world in the breeding of domestic cattle, not horses, we should expect physical deterioration, the development of diseases, and disaster. On the contrary, the usual evil results of inbreeding in domestic cattle have been totally absent. The red deer of New Zealand are to-day physically larger and more robust animals, with longer and heavier antlers and longer hair than any of the red deer of Europe west of Germany. Red deer have been introduced practically all over New Zealand, and the total number now in the islands must be somewhere near forty thousand. The sportsmen of that country have grand sport, and take many splendid trophies. The transplantation has been a very great success. Incidentally, the case of the inbred deer of the North Island, taken along with other cases of which we know, establishes a new and important principle in evolution. It is this. When healthy wild animals are established in a state of nature, either absolutely free or confined in preserves so large that they roam at will, seek the food of nature and take care of themselves, in- and inbreeding produces no ill effects, and ceases to be a factor. The animals develop in physical perfection according to the climate and their food supply, and the introduction of new blood is not necessary. THE FALLOW DEER ON THE ISLAND OF Lumbay. In the Irish Sea, a few miles from the south-east coast of Ireland, is the island of Lambay, owned by Cecil Baring, Esquire. The island is precisely one square mile in area, and some of its sea-frontage terminates in perpendicular cliffs. In many ways the island is of unusual interest to zoologists, and its fauna has been well set forth by Mr. Baring. In the year 1893, three fallow deer, Dama vulgaris, a buck, and two does, were transplanted from a park on the Irish mainland to Lambay, and there set free. From that slender stock has sprung a large herd, which, but for the many deer that have been purposefully shot, and the really considerable number that have been killed by going over the cliffs in stormy weather, the progeny of the original three would to-day number several hundred head. No new blood has been introduced, and no deer have died of disease. Even counting out the losses by the rifle and by accidental death, the herd to-day numbers more than one hundred head. Mr. Baring declares that neither he nor his gamekeeper have ever been able to discover any deterioration in the deer of Lambay either in size weight size of antlers fertility or general physical stamina. The deterioration through disease, especially tuberculosis, that is always dreaded and often observed in closely inbred domestic cattle has been totally absent. In looking about for wild species that have been transplanted, and that have thriven and become beneficial to man, there seems to be mighty little game in sight. The vast majority belong in the next chapter. We will venture to mention the bobwhite quail that were introduced into Utah in 1871, into Idaho in 1875, and the California valley quail in Washington in 1857. Wherever these efforts have succeeded, the results have been beneficial to man." In 1879 a well-organized effort was made to introduce European quail into several of the New England and Middle States, to take the place of the Bob White, we may suppose, the bird that can't stand the winters. About three thousand birds were distributed and set free, and went down and out just as might have been expected. During the past twenty years it is safe to say that not less than five hundred thousand dollars have been expended in the northern states, and particularly in the northeastern states, in importing live quail from Kansas, the Indian Territory, Oklahoma, Texas, the Carolinas, and other southern states, for restocking areas from which the northern Bob White had been exterminated by foolish overshooting. I think that fully nine-tenths of these efforts have ended in total failure. The quail could not survive in their strange environment. I cannot recall a single instance in which restocking northern covers with southern quail has been a success." There is no royal road to the restoration of an exterminated bird species. Where the native seed still exists, by long labor and travail, through protection and a mighty long close season, it can be encouraged to breed back and return, but it is an evolution that cannot be hurried in the least. Protect mother nature, and leave the rest to her. With mammals the case is different. It is possible to restock depleted areas, provided time is recognized as a dominant factor. I can cite two interesting cases by way of illustration, but this subject will form another chapter. In the transplantation of fishes, conditions are widely different, and many notable successes have been achieved. One of the greatest hits ever made by the United States Bureau of Fisheries in the planting of fish in new localities was the introduction of the striped bass or rockfish, Roccus lineatus, of our Atlantic coast, into the coast waters of California. In 1879, 135 live fish were deposited in Carquins Strait at Martinez, and in 1832, 300 more were planted in Cistern Bay, near the first locality chosen. Twelve years after the first planting in San Francisco Bay, the markets of San Francisco handled 149,997 pounds of striped bass. At that time the average weight for a whole year was eleven pounds, and the average price was ten cents per pound. Fish weighing as high as forty-nine pounds have been taken, and there are reasons for the belief that eventually the fish of California will attain as great weight as those of the Atlantic and the Gulf. The San Francisco markets now sell, annually, about one and one-half million pounds of striped bass. This fish has taken its place among anglers as one of the game fishes of the California coast and affords fine sport. Strange to say, however, it is not yet spread beyond the shores of California. Regarding this species, the records of the United States Bureau of Fisheries are of interest. In 1879, the California markets handled 2,949,642 pounds, worth $225,527 American Natural History nowhere else in the world we venture to say were such extensive costly and persistent efforts put forth in the transplantation of any wild foreign species as the old u s fish commission under professor spencer f baird put forth in the introduction of the german carp into the fresh-water ponds lakes and rivers of the united states It was held that because the carp would live and thrive in waters bottomed with mud, that species would be a boon to all inland regions where bodies of water, or streams, were scarce and dear. Although the carp is not the best fish in the world for the table, it seemed that the dwellers in the prairie and Great Plains regions would find it far better than bullheads, or no fish at all, which are about the same thing. By means of special fist-cars, sent literally all over the United States, at a great total expense, Live carp, hatched in the ponds near the Washington Monument, were distributed to all applicants. The German carp spreads far and wide, but to-day, I think, the fish has about as many enemies as friends. In some places strong objections have been filed to the manner in which the carp stir up the mud at the bottom of ponds and small lakes, greatly to the detriment of all the native fishes found therein. End of chapter 34